Super Talk Mississippi media production. You're listening to Sports Talk Mississippi On Demand, presented by Pearl River Resort. Escape to Choctaw, Mississippi and enjoy world-class gaming, the Dancing Rabbit Golf Club, and Geyser Falls Water Park. Escape to Pearl River Resort. This, this is Sports Talk Mississippi. On your radio and in the game, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Here we go, Tuesday afternoon, Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad, thank you for being with us. Wherever you're listening, however you're listening, maybe you're watching, whatever it is, we're glad that you're along for the ride. Best way for you to communicate with us is via the C Spire text line. That number is 601-879-4395. Again, 601-879-4395. Four three nine five. Want double the data for the same dang price? Now all prepaid by Ceasefire plans get double the high speed data through the end of the year. No bull, just better wireless. Learn more at ceasefire.com slash prepaid. I know both of you were locked in on Monday night football. I would imagine that both of you, like many of the Saints fans that were watching and were engaging with the world via social media, were incredibly frustrated for a big part of the game. And then I assume that most of you, when it was all said and done, had big smiles on your face, although concern existed because ultimately the Saints got a win. Yeah, it was more of a, uh, a unconfident sigh of relief. <laughs> Uh, Obviously very happy they won the game. Uh, They still have a chance to win the division. All the goals are still in front of them, but the way they played last night, um, if they keep playing like this, their goals are not achievable. Uh, That's the thing. is You're happy they won the game. Uh, There's still communication issues on the back end of the defense, and that's a real problem. Defensive line up front, and the Chargers were shorthanded on the offensive line, but still, that was the best Cam Jordan especially has played all season long. They were very good up front, so that's encouraging. But they still had lapses in the back end of the defense, and they're still missing Janoris Jenkins, but by and large, they're healthy there. However, he threw for over 300 yards, and the second half, he was much better, much more accurate. total. Even had a deep ball. He threw a deep ball, which is great. And threw it beautifully. Oh, yes. Great route, wide open, hit the receiver in stride going into the end zone. Uh, Let's see, that was uh, Jared Cook, right? Yeah, uh, who has been banged up himself. And the the way they're they're having to go about their offense is one that's going to win a lot of games. It can win the division. It can win a playoff game. But if the answer really is Super Bowl or bust, I don't care if you have Mike Thomas and Emmanuel Sanders and Alvin Kamara, which is a great group of guys to be running a bunch of underneath stuff to, if you're that terrified of throwing the football down the field, are you going to Lambeau and winning a playoff game? Are you going to Seattle and winning a playoff game? You're not. That's what concerns me about this team. Everything was pointing to 18, 19, and 20 of being the years where you're supposed to win a Super Bowl. And they still don't look like that yet. They have all the pieces except for one. And I love Drew Brees, and he was better in the second half yesterday, but he looked dead again for half of a football game last night. Terrified yeah, but then to throw he it didn't down. look dead in the second half. But that, that's the point. Is 
is that winning playoff games, multiple playoff games? No, it's not. That's why I, I don't, you know, if it was a rebuilding process and it was a young quarterback, yeah, you take three and two with a quarterback that's struggling with consistency. Not a guy that's been in the league for two decades and it's Super Bowl or bust. That's the concern. It was sloppy. He looked, he and Sean Payton, Sean Payton called plays last night for a while like he was terrified of his quarterback throwing downfield and his quarterback looked like he was scared of throwing downfield. That's where I'm concerned. It's not that they won the game. That's great. You know, awesome. I was happy. But if you're going to get just one half of good football from Drew Brees in which you still keep most everything underneath, you're not winning multiple playoff games. Hey, Dad, one of the things that people were particularly frustrated about was Taysom Hill, Taysom Hill, Taysom Hill. Taysom Hill didn't end up with that many touches in the game. He had three rushes. One of them was a touchdown. He threw one pass. It was incomplete. And he was targeted a couple of times in the passing game, but did not have a catch. So only four total touches in the game for Taysom Hill. Uh, Taysom Hill, And yet people are still so polarized about his usage in the Saints offense. It's all about the timing of those touches is, is what we're seeing. You know, he, he, he seems to keep being brought into the game at key moments and not being able to, to deliver with the the exception of that touchdown, which was a, a really good play. Um, yeah. that, I think that's that's the biggest frustration. Kind of like a flood right from a blocking standpoint, and then he yeah. showed you some pretty elite speed in the open field. Yeah, but it's just it's just a question of, you know, you feel like the offense is moving a little bit and Breeze is finally starting to warm up, and then they're, they're, they're pulling him out to bring in Taysom Hill. I, I really feel like Taysom Hill is a valuable player and he can be a guy who, who does a lot for this offense, but there needs to be less of him at quarterback, I think. It, it needs to be, yes. he can, I think he's good at the, as, the, as a receiver. If you want to find some ways to involve him in the running game beyond him taking the snap, that's fine, but, but I think that, that that needs to be the path forward for, for right now. And then if you know after this season, I think I think it's becoming more and more evident that this is going to be it for Breeze. If you're ready to move forward with him as your quarterback next year, great. But this year, find ways to get the ball into his hands, but don't take the ball out of Drew Breeze's hands at the same time. You got- is there an element of Tim Tebow's freshman year at Florida when Taysom Hill comes into the game? Where you know it's not really a passing threat. He's really coming into the game for one reason and one reason only, and that's to take a direct snap and go get you a yard or go move the sticks or in a goal line situation figure out a way to get into the end zone. That that it's predictable, but Florida freshman year Tim Tebow was successful even though it was predictable because he was just better at it than the defense generally was. And and Taysom Hill kind of fits that mold, doesn't he? That Florida team was the national champions. They were loaded top to bottom. So, you know, doing that stuff against college teams is one thing, but against pro teams where the talent gaps aren't that huge, uh, it's just it's just more difficult. That when you bring the guy in and they're like, he's going to have the ball, NFL teams are going to sniff that out a lot quicker than college teams will. Peyton got cute last night. It, it, that that third down play where Taysom lined up at quarterback, and yes, it, it did score later in the game. But for example. You need half a yard, and you give the ball to Michael Burton. And I don't know a whole lot about Michael Burton, but I can tell you one thing. Uh, He's not as good at running the football as Alvin Kamara or Latavius Murray. And I know you just need half a yard, and a fullback dive is nice, but he clearly looked like he didn't really know how to put his head down. 
and get half a yard. Little things like that. Taking the ball out of your quarterback's hands to let a guy that is not a passing threat whatsoever dance around in the backfield and get tackled for a loss. Instead of giving it to Alvin Kamara, who's got the best balance in the NFL. The guy is surreal after contact. Or Latavius Murray, who always falls forward. Uh, always. You do this little cute fullback thing that you haven't done all season. That It was a bizarre, especially in the first yeah, half. Play, it got yeah. better in the second half, but it was a bizarre first half for Sean Payton. Yeah. There was, I don't know if it's fair to call it a game-saving play, but the final play of the game was oh, yeah. pretty darn impressive by yeah. Marshawn Lattimore. <laughs> you could call that a game-saving play, for a, sure. A sl- They're going to well, kick a field goal to, to, to keep the game going if you don't. Probably so. So they're going forward on fourth down, trying to get into field goal range. And you got Mike Williams, who is a big receiver. And you know, you were talking about um, Borky a second ago. Latavius Murray is a guy who falls forward. Mike Williams is a guy who falls forward, if for no other reason because of his size. And he caught that slant and had momentum. And Marshawn Lattimore locked him up and was in the process of bringing him to the ground. And another Saints player came in to try and clean it up and nearly knocked him forward across Mario the first Davis. down marker. And yeah. Lattimore simply just brute strength, like stalemated him and pulled him back. And that was ball game. Talk about going to be a first down on too. the field. Yeah, that's going to be a first down. So it's not even about uh, getting the field goal to tie at that point. They could keep the drive alive. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was, a, that was a fourth down play. It was fourth and yeah. seven, I think. And and Lattimore, uh, Williams is a lot bigger receiver. Just a few you know minutes earlier, in, I guess in the fourth quarter, he had mossed two, de- two defensive backs on a ridiculous catch. Yeah, great um, catch. Great yeah, catch. So, I mean, physically, that's a matchup Marshawn Lattimore should lose. So good for him. And, and Borky sort of mentioned the defensive breakdowns in the secondary. I think next, when, after this bye, having uh, uh, Janoris Jenkins back will help some of that as well. Hopefully. And uh, that, that touchdown, and the Michael Thomas. touchdown was... I, I, I was uh, going to say, can we, can we mention the fact that Michael Thomas needs to stop trying to fight his own teammates so that he can, now that he's actually healthy enough to play, fight you, actually Richard, how about play? that? Yeah, well, yes, I agree. Yeah, Jeff Duncan wrote a, a nice column with, with some details about Michael Thomas's biggest strength being his competitiveness, but also he gets uber competitive to the point where it can bring him down. And last week was one of those examples where he, he gets so hot and so competitive that he lost his cool, and that's something he's got to fix and fix quick or else this will be a recurring problem. Sports Talk Mississippi, we're just getting started with you. We've got a bunch coming up this afternoon. I think it's going to be a fun show. We've uh, we've got um, Luke Johnson joining us in a little while. We'll talk some Southern Miss with him. Andy Staples from The Athletic will join us to begin the 4 o'clock hour. Man, really fascinating story that he wrote about Jeff Levy, Lane Kiffin, and the Ole Miss offense. And Cole Kubelik coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Sports Talk Mississippi with you. I don't mean this for, to be political at all. This is just an observation. And, and, and has nothing to do with right, left, whatever. I'm not sure that I can think of a more grueling day or days than Amy Coney Barrett's going through and any other Supreme Court nominees going through, given the partisan world in which we live, in which... You are on the stand for an extended period of time having 
people either throw softballs at you or throw missiles at you. And you're never, I mean, I guess based on who's asking the questions, you kind of know whether they're going to be softballs or or missiles. But the need, the, the, the requirement to be sharp and on your A game for 10, 12, 14 hours, multiple days, holy cow. She's pretty impressive, too. Does not have a notebook or anything in front of her. And she is recalling decisions she made years ago, I mean, to the letter. It's impressive. There's She's no been way pretty I can do unflappable. That. Oh yeah, and I was watching some of that earlier, and I kind of had that same observation. I was like, "Do do these people really want to like ask her a question?" I, I spent oh probably a half hour today or so with it on after I was done with the show prep and stuff like that, and there was a good ten minutes of talking, and I'm not you know the person that was asking the questions gave a speech that had nothing to do with the Supreme Court or her. Or her record. Oh, yeah. Or There's anything. plenty of grandstanding that yeah, goes I'm just on. Thinking, this is a charade. What, what are we even doing here? What am I watching? Because you're just giving me a speech. You're not letting me learn anything about this woman who might serve on the Supreme Court. Yeah. She's sharp, anyway. though. Yeah. Like I said, I was not trying to make that political uh, by any stretch of the imagination, just kind of a, uh, a random observation. You have Major League Baseball coming your way tonight. Two games, and they are happening with fans in attendance. Tampa Bay leads Houston two games to none after their 4-2 to win yesterday. Atlanta jumped out to a one-game-to-none series lead over the Los Angeles Dodgers. Pump that fist, hey, Dad. I pumped it for the Astros, too, though. I'm glad they're down 2-0. Uh, so Braves won it 5-1 to yesterday. They exploded for four runs in the top of the ninth. Austin Riley broke a 1-1 tie with a massive home run. He knew it when he swung the bat. And uh, then the Braves were able to pile on some insurance. So you had Freddie Freeman, who is likely to be the National League MVP this year, had a home run early that uh, got uh, the Braves on the board. Dodgers tied it up with a, what was it, a Kiki Hernandez home run uh, a little bit later in the game. I think that's who it was. Um, boo, boo, boo. Yeah, it was, uh, it was Hernandez that um, had the home run for the Dodgers. And then the Braves get four runs in the top of the ninth inning. They take game one in front of 10,700 fans. They are playing it in Arlington at Globe Life Field, the new home of the Texas Rangers, and um, about a quarter capacity. So that's uh, that's kind of a cool change. Game two coming your way tonight at uh, 5.05, I believe. Yeah, first pitch, 5.05 on FS1. Tampa Bay-Houston gets started at 7.40. On uh, on TBS, and let's see that Tampa Bay Houston game yesterday. It was played in where's it played at Petco in San Diego, and they did not have any fans in attendance for that one. So you get it for the uh, I guess the NLCS and for the um, World Series that's happening in Texas. So, any other thoughts kind of wrapping up the uh, the Saints discussion? Well, there's a developing story right now, not at all related to last night's game. Even Glad though you pointed that out. I was headed in that direction absolutely next. Yeah, we did get... So, last night at halftime, there were a lot of people, I mean, even national sports people calling for Jameis Winston. Um, maybe I'm crazy. I don't see that happening unless Breeze gets hurt. I do not think... 
no matter what happens and, and how good or bad he is moving forward, that Sean Payton and Mickey Loomis and the Saints will allow Drew Brees' final season to be one in which he gets benched for Jameis Winston. I think they will ride with him. It's just my guess. I think they will ride with him in, until the season ends, however way it ends. But I don't think that he's getting benched for Jameis Winston, who just threw 30 interceptions last year, because he's... Uh, look, the arm's dead. It's clearly dead. But I don't think that they're benching him for Jameis at any point, no matter how bad it gets. You know the Saints play their home games at Mercedes-Benz Superdome, but because of the continued denial of Mayor LaToya Cantrell in New Orleans, uh, denial of the request to have people in the stands, the Saints are looking elsewhere to play their quote-unquote home games for the remainder of the season. And that somewhere else is Baton Rouge. Last time Saints played games in New Orleans was follow, or excuse me, in Baton Rouge was following Hurricane Katrina when the Superdome was inoperable. Saints officials are meeting today with LSU officials about having the Saints play upcoming games at Tiger Stadium. That's according to Saints official Greg Vincell. He told that to ESPN's Adam Schefter. Here's the quote. LSU has been gracious and enthusiastic regarding hosting our future games and we very much uh, much appreciate their partnership. We have also discussed the possibility of moving our home games to LSU with the NFL, and they are aware of our exploring this option. Obviously, our overwhelming preference is to play our games in the Mercedes-Benz Superdome with partial fan attendance, but there has been no indication from the city on when or if this might be approved. 102-321 is the capacity of Tiger Stadium. LSU having fans at 25% capacity in Baton Rouge. And so because at the state level they are allowing that, it's up to local jurisdictions to make those decisions. The New Orleans Saints looking for a little home field advantage and also probably a little bit of an infusion of capital are exploring moving the rest of their games to Baton Rouge unless something changes in New Orleans. Doesn't sound like that's going to happen, by the way. The mayor released a statement, and it says this. While the Saints' request for a special exemption to the city's COVID-19 guidelines remains under consideration, allowing 20,000 people in an indoor space presents significant public health concerns. At present, no NFL stadium in the country with a fixed-roof facility is allowing such an exception. We will continue to monitor the public health data, blah, blah, blah. Basically, no, it's not happening. So are you guys on board with the Saints moving their games to Baton Rouge so they can have some fans there? Yep. I don't have a problem with that. The weekend of the 14th and 15th, you could have Alabama at LSU and 49ers at Saints at Tiger Stadium back-to-back days. That's, that is a – got to release those tailgating requirements. Got to let those guys tailgate. They'll be, that'll be 40, 72 hours of just uninterrupted party. <laughs> but so – Number one, I've seen people say, why would the Saints get out of the dome environment? As if Baton Rouge, Louisiana is not 78 and sunny in October. I mean, give me a break. And number two, you can imagine they've spent months and months and months working on protocols for a few thousand people to safely attend their games. The governor has allowed them to do it. The league has said it's all good. 
And of course, there is a measure of personal responsibility. If you don't feel safe going to the game, you certainly do not have to go. If it, if the protocols are not enough, you don't have to attend. The only person holding this up is the mayor. And if they want to go play somewhere else to allow fans at an appropriate distance, because COVID is a real thing, uh, they should be allowed to do so. And I'm glad they're playing ball with this, and I hope they're not bluffing, because everyone at every level, except for the mayoral's, the mayor's office, is saying that this is okay and that their protocols are good enough, fine. We'll take our business up the road to Baton Rouge, and they can benefit from a few thousand people in town on a Sunday. Politics aside, aren't the New Orleans Saints the unifying force in New Orleans? Yes. Yes. So this message makes a lot of sense. I can guarantee you the mayor of New Orleans, Latoya Cantrell, will not be reelected in 2021 if the Saints play in Baton Rouge. There's no question about about that. It's the sort of, you know, <sighs> politics and sports have certainly intertwined more than they maybe ever have the past five or six months. But this is a real example where uh, politicians and sports, it's going to cost somebody a job. There's just no way around it. If the Saints can't play at home and they go 80 miles up the road or however far it is to Baton Rouge, and and play games in front of fans. Yeah, that's that, that's that's a killer right there. You're, you're not coming back from that. Uh oh, breaking news: Florida has suspended all football team activities due to COVID. Well, there were five positive tests on Florida that were reported earlier today. This is in advance of what was supposed to be LSU at Florida this Saturday. This is the first time we faced this in the SEC. You had the announcement earlier this week that LSU-Missouri in Nashville was not going to happen. I mean, we can only assume that if Florida is suspending all football activities on Tuesday of a game week, that means that game's not happening either, right? Probably so. Feels like a, uh, a safe assumption. Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm. They make it a little difficult for uh, Dan Mullen to get his wish of 90,000 people inside the swamp on Saturday. That has led a Mississippi basketball team to the Final Four. That was in 1996. He has spent the last six seasons as the color analyst on the radio for uh, Mississippi State basketball and is just a really good dude that we have always enjoyed uh, visiting with here on uh, on Sports Talk Mississippi. What's your reaction, Luke, to uh, Richard Williams being added to uh, Jay Ladner's staff? Started hearing, you know, this morning, Keith Hinton from Big Gold Nation uh, was reporting it, and uh, and then about one o'clock, two o'clock, and it came down the shoot that it was going to be official. Rick Cleveland wrote an article in Mississippi today, and I think it's it's great. It's great for Jay Ladner. Uh, he and Richard Williams go way back, and. Um, he was actually even a bench coach for Jay uh, at State Stanislaus. So when he left Mississippi State, he went down to the coast and and uh, started hanging out with Jay and, and was was an assistant there, just kind of volunteer wise. And he's kind of the guy that, that got Jay Ladner into coaching in '92. Um, Rick Cleveland has a really good article on it on it today. But yeah, just mm-hmm. uh, from an extraordinary experience uh, perspective and what you just said. I mean, how many times do you have an assistant coach that's in the Hall of Fame? Um, who's going to be actively coaching, and uh, I think he starts tomorrow. He said at 11 a.m. So that, that's a, that's really good. And, and pretty specific around, there. Yeah, pretty 
pretty specific. But uh, anybody that has met Jay Ladner in his first year at Southern Miss knows uh, how, how tough of a job it was that he inherited and still living off uh, some of the, the issues um, that uh, happened uh, five, six years ago. But they're past that, hopefully, and a great recruiting class. And so when you bring in a, a great um, basketball mind like Richard Williams and put it with some of the young studs that Southern Miss have coming in, I, I think the Eagles, you will see a, a significant improvement uh, for them. And Reed Green Coliseum uh, got some upgrades in the last month or so. And so uh, I think a lot of Southern Miss fans are really excited about basketball more than they ever have been maybe the last decade. What were the upgrades to uh, Reed Green? Completely redid the floor uh, and put in a lot of new lighting. Uh, the, the ability, you know, to turn lights on and off, and you know, for, for some pregame stuff. But but the, the hardwood is exceptional. Got a big outline of the state of Mississippi with Eagle Head uh, right in the middle, and looks really good. I think a lot of Southern Miss fans, when they saw it and saw the, the videos that were released, were in some ways really surprised at how nice the upgrades were, and, and that's kind of been a long time coming and the city of Hattiesburg you know with the bond issue um, committed to you know improve Reed Green little by little over the next several years and that was uh, part one to it. So the city of Hattiesburg is actually helping with the funding on that? Well I don't know specifically on this but they did pass a bond issue um, in the last few years that would go towards um, upgrading Reed Green Coliseum. Obviously a lot of people want to see it you know, a lot of other things need to happen, but this was the first and foremost. And they've done some stuff with locker rooms, and but specifically with the bond issue, that's coming down the chute, and, and some of that probably is tied in with this. Gotcha. Uh, Luke Johnson on the Farm Bureau phone line. Let's switch gears to football. UTEP on Saturday night, a 6.30 kickoff from El Paso. Game is on ESPN2, and... Uh, kind of an unexpected open date this past weekend after the game with FAU was postponed or, I guess, canceled uh, because of COVID issues related to the Owls football program. Certainly going to be good to see uh, Southern Miss getting back to the field. How'd they use the open date? Well, it allowed uh, some guys, uh, they'll have some guys back this week, but it allowed really them to concentrate on themselves. They got an early look at UTEP on Friday, and then Scotty Walden told them that he was going <laughs> to they were going to practice some on Saturday. He got them in there and then told them they were going to go to a, to the escape room in Hattiesburg. So they had a team-building um, activity on Saturday and, and got to experience uh, some of that escape room stuff. Pretty cool situation to, to work through stuff together. And then they practiced last night. Um, in the press conference yesterday, some guys will be back this week. Don Dragdale will be back. But Tim Jones looked pretty good at practice Sunday night. Matt Kubik, offensive coordinator, feels pretty good about uh, his condition for Saturday. Scotty was a little more tentative on that, calling it day by day, but it looks like there's a good chance Tim Jones will be back this week. And that's good news because not only do you get the Tim Jones factor, but you also get um, kind of the added benefit of now having two guys that can go down the field and catch the ball. You do, and and Brownlee becomes a guy that people have to watch just because of how explosive he's been, so you you can't double-team Tim. Uh, so much. Demarcus Jones can become a possession receiver in that. UTEP has a has a pretty good defense. Um, they went out and recruited hard in the JUCOs. Eight of their 11 starters on defense are JUCO guys. Um, they're only giving up like 330 uh, a game. And what they're going to do, Kubik was talking about yesterday, they're going to play quarters and, and just kind of stick a an extra defensive back right in the middle of the field. It can take, it can take away some of your run-pass option. And so Southern Miss just won't be able to air it out against UTEP. They're going to force them to run the ball, and and who knows? You know, you you 
coming off the North Texas, which North Texas is not very good defensively. We saw that they got blown out by Charlotte. But at the same token, Southern Miss a little more confidence with running the football. And so I think UTEP will try to take the way, away the pass early from, from Southern Miss and force them to run the ball more. So we mentioned a staff change, or I guess upgrade would be the way to describe it in basketball. Any staff things happening with football? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Golden Eagles brought in two uh, analysts uh, this week. It's kind of unique in the middle of the season, but it's 2020, and it's Southern Miss in 2020. So uh, on the offensive side, uh, Scotty Walden brings in Scott Highsmith. He was uh, back in the day with Leach and Mummy at the Kentucky Air Raid, and then he was the head coach at Bellhaven, and then most recently he was the head coach at East Texas Baptist after Scotty Walden left for Southern Miss. He's on the offensive side. And then on the defensive side, a name that uh, Southern Miss fans are familiar with, Rick Mentor. He was the head coach at Cincinnati for 10 years, and yeah. he was a two-time defensive coordinator at Notre Dame and, and uh, was at Marshall and some other schools in Conference USA. And I think he's already on the ground in Hattiesburg, and so those guys will you know serve as analysts. And, and I think Scotty particularly talked about Mentor, just said, you know, you, you, as a young coach, you want older guys pouring into you, and that's what Mentor brings. So I thought that was a pretty good, uh, very good move um, by, by Scotty Walding because Rick Mentor has tremendous coaching experience. Well, and you also kind of have to tip your cap to Jeremy McLean on a move like that because they had to find the resources to be able to pull that off, right? Yeah, they did. And when you look at um, they had a recruiting coordinator leave and they, they moved some guys up out of uh, some quality control. So there were some funds available, you know, for that. I think that's where, where they got those funds from. And so, yeah, I mean, um, Jeremy McLean on board, you know, doing their best to make the best of the situation. It just seems like um, that the, the unsettledness that seemed in, in the early part, even before the South Alabama game and, and after the South Alabama game during the transition, it seems like Scotty Walden has settled the ship some and, and uh, you, you just hope for more buy-in uh, against UTEP this week. Yeah, so quick question here as we wrap things up. This comes from Bubba and Starkville on the C Spire text line. Ask Luke what the chances are that Scotty gets the head coaching job. I'm pulling for him. Yeah, I think everybody is. I, I think he's got to win seven or eight games. I mean, I think that's the bottom line. I'm not sure five or six gets you there. But, again, how do you evaluate that with how, you know, turmoil it's been, how the players respond, and what shape of the uh, is the – the program in, how do they play? Do, do they, do they, if they lose four or five games, do they lose by 20 points or, or is it like Louisiana Tech losses? You know, so I, I don't think there's a definite litmus test, but I would say probably he's got to get to seven wins to, to be considered. But again, how do you get that? How do you lose? And all that's got to go in. And again, Jeremy McLean, <laughs> welcome to, uh, the athletic, uh, director life at Southern Miss. Well, if he's even going to get to six, then you know that uh, Saturday is a big one as Southern Miss is on the road in El Paso to take on UTEP at 6.30. Blue, good to visit with you as always. Thank you. Bye, guys. Have a great week. Sports Talk Mississippi streaming at supertalk.fm about 15 minutes from right now. Andy Staples from The Athletic will join us in addition to talking to him about the story that he wrote about Ole Miss's offense We'll talk to him about his most recent news out of the University of Florida. We'll be right back. Back on Sports Talk Mississippi with you, streaming at supertalk.fm. C Spire text line, why did Vandy have to play last week and Florida possibly not? Well, 
We don't know yet whether Florida is going to play or not this weekend. If you remember, the SEC put some thresholds in place for minimums that were necessary to be able to play the games. I don't remember those off the top of my head. What was it, 56 total? 53. No. 53 scholarship players, right? They had 56. I I thought it was 56. 53 is the NFL number. Okay, okay. And 56 was the total, and you had to have 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 one quarterback, six offensive linemen, and was it four defensive linemen? I think those were the like position group thresholds that were there. But schools, in the event of an outbreak, could request a special exception. And to your point just a second ago, it it's scholarship players, not roster numbers. So. We'll see. I guess Vanderbilt didn't hit those thresholds last week at certain position groups, despite a high number of guys that were out, and they didn't request a special exception, which would be at the discretion of the commissioner. I mean, if, let's say, they they obviously suspended activities for today and they're going through some kind of investigative process, probably another round of testing or two tomorrow, can you expect 18 to 20-year-olds to play a game with very little practice and prep time leading up to it? These aren't professionals, you know? I mean, they are college kids, and if you take multiple days of practice leading up to a game away from them, is it right to ask them to play? Probably need to know how much practice time gets taken away. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say altogether that they they had yet to practice today, that it was scheduled for the afternoon, and they do not practice at all tomorrow. So Thursday is their next practice. So they would have practiced Monday and Thursday and then could go on Friday, whatever they wanted to do and play on Saturday? Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't have an issue with that. Yeah, me either. If... They were not able to practice today, were not able to practice tomorrow, couldn't go Thursday. To me, that would be the tipping point where, yeah, yeah, you you can't really ask them to play when they miss three days of practice in the week. But that's just me. So, um, interesting text here. I'm concerned about more SEC teams having positive cases. My coworker's brother plays football for Mississippi State. My coworker and her family have gone to all three games, LSU, Davis Wade, and then Lexington. They posted pictures of each trip on Facebook with her brother who dresses each game either prior to the game or post-game. When teams are allowing their players to be exposed to their families with no mask visible and then no telling if these players could get COVID, which could result in positive cases on the team, I think teams wanted a bubble environment but have let their guard down to accommodate families. I mean, there's risk everywhere you go. I would not be okay with telling a college football player he is not allowed to interact with his family after a game. I would not yeah, be okay with that, that at all. You can't do that. I agree. Preston and Fulton. He says, hot take. Looking at Ole Miss the next few games, there's a really good chance they win the next four. If Ole Miss wins the next four, that would mean a win at Arkansas this weekend. That would mean a home win against Auburn, a road win against Vanderbilt, and then following an open date, a win against South Carolina. 
And we talked a little yesterday about the remaining schedule for Ole Miss, and I, I don't think that's that hot of a take. It's not. If you made me, if you made me guess what is the record for Ole Miss in the next four games, I probably would err on the side of three and one. They'll be favored, I can guarantee you, in three of those four. Favored against Arkansas, favored against Vanderbilt. They will be favored against South Carolina. My assumption is that they will be an underdog against Auburn who travels to South Carolina this weekend. And that's a losable game for, for them. I mean, there's a, a hodgepodge of um, not great, te- uh, very flawed teams in the middle of the SEC, and, and Auburn and Ole Miss both fall into that, that camp. But, it, yeah, it's certainly possible. And the thing is, I, I know the defense is bad. It's very bad. Um, but it is going to get easier for them from here. Uh, the, the quarterbacks that have the best incompletion-to-touchdown ratio in college football of the top three, Ole Miss has already played two of them. Yeah. So it, it it doesn't mean that they're going to be better, and Kentucky ran for a billion yards against them, but the challenge that they face is not the same that they have seen in the first two of the first three weeks. Completely agree. One hour of Sports Talk Mississippi with you in the books on this Tuesday afternoon. Andy Staples will join us on the Farm Bureau phone line to start the 4 o'clock hour. That's coming up about, oh, six or seven minutes from right now. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad, and you. What a gorgeous Tuesday. Sports Talk Mississippi with you, streaming at supertalk.fm. Let's jump right to the Farm Bureau phone line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team, Mississippi Farm Bureau. I was excited when Borky sent me the rundown today to see that Andy Staples would be joining us. It's the first time, I think, ever that Andy's been on with us and certainly excited to uh, get some of his perspective. Really cool story at The Athletic. If you're not a subscriber, it's worth the... Two, three, four, five, six dollars a month, whatever it is, uh, depending on the special you get, because you get incredible content. And uh, most recently from Andy Staples, a deep dive into the Ole Miss offense under Lane Kiffin and uh, and Jeff Levy. Andy, really appreciate a few minutes of your time. I'd love to start here, and I don't know if this is something that's answerable or not. Offenses have names, right? I mean, West Coast right. offense, air raid offense, triple option. Is there a name or a good way to describe what Ole Miss is doing offensively right now? There's not really a name because it's it's sort of a fusion of two things. It's a lot of the Baylor offense from from the you know the earlier part of of the last decade because that that's where you get what you get from Jeff Levy who was on those Baylor staffs and uh, has worked you know in different places with those guys and um, Kendall Bryles was the offense coordinator for Lane Kiffin at Florida Atlantic. So that's where they, they kind of started melding this together. But they still do a lot of the things that Lane did when he was the OC at Alabama. Like if you look at a lot of the jet motion stuff, it's very similar to what you would have seen from Alabama in 2015. And a lot of the RPO stuff is, is similar to what you would have seen from Alabama in 2016. So it's sort of a marriage of those two things. So I don't really know that it has a name. I mean, probably because Lane tends to do these best spoke off or bespoke offenses for uh, the the personnel he has, build around who yeah. he has. You, you got to name it like you know something about Matt Corral. I mean, because he's the one who makes it go. So is it is it the Corral snake offense? You know the Corral snakes and the Land Sharks. I don't know. <laughs> 
<laughs> are we allowed to call the defense land sharks? Are they allowed to have a nickname if they're if they're giving up that many points and yards? Yeah, I think I only saw one land shark on Saturday night, and it was from an Alabama defender late in the game after they made a play. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the thing. But yeah, this offense is is really kind of it's unique because it's not it's not the straight Baylor offense from before that you, you see that at Syracuse they're running that now there's more to it than that and and Levy was at UCF last year so he's he's picked up some stuff if you look at UCF from last year their formation is very similar to what what Ole Miss's formations look like now but then there's also stuff that Ole Miss does that looks exactly like what Lane did at Alabama so uh, I think they've married it pretty well and the, the part that I was most impressed with, and if you, if you watch a little bit of the Florida game and then you go watch a little bit of the Alabama game, you can tell that the players are starting to understand and starting to know what, what's expected of them and, and, and are moving very crisply through the offense now. Or, like, you go back to the Florida game, you see a lot of guys, like, looking off the sideline going, okay, am I lined up right? Is this what I'm supposed to do? And there was a, there was a situation in the second quarter the other night where they had third and five, they hand off to, to Snoop, Snoop gains four yards. They there's no like the, the players barely barely even look at the sideline. They know they're going for it on fourth and one. They line up in an entirely different formation that looks nothing like what they just lined up in. And Alabama's defense, you can see them just completely freaking out. Like they don't know where to go. Nobody knows. They, they see that Ole Miss is completely overloaded one side of the field. So Alabama sends everybody to that side of the field, which happens to be the short side of the field, and Ole Miss is ready to snap the ball within seven seconds of the previous play ending. They ended up snapping it, I think, at 10 seconds after that play ended. And then Snoop gains 22 yards on fourth and one because he just runs right, and there is literally no one on the right side of the field for Alabama. But that's the sort of stuff they do. I mean, you're not going to out-talent Alabama's defense if you're Ole Miss, but you can, you can out-scheme them and then use the special players that you have if you're Ole Miss, and that's, that would be Corral. Kenny Aboa is really good. The tight end that they got from, from Temple as a grad transfer. Yeah. Uh, Elijah Moore and then the two backs, Connor Neely. I mean, they, they got some players. You know, one of the things that stood out to me on Saturday night, Ole Miss was four for four on fourth down. And Lane talked when he got the job about using analytics. And I think some of that was analytics driven. And some of it was we're not going to win against Alabama kicking field goals. And they legitimately were playing to win the game, not to keep it close. But on those fourth down conversions, you think about watching football, and a lot of times there's indecision. Like the, the head coach, well, do we right. do it? Do we not do it? And sometimes they burn a timeout. There was never any indecision on the times they chose to go for it for fourth down. It was the exact same tempo you were just talking about. And that's exactly right, and I think that's a big part of it. I think that the ones who are we going to go for it, oh, no, let's call timeout, oh, no, let's do a hard count and then see if the defense jumps, then maybe we'll run a play. They never make it. Those teams never convert. It's the yeah. ones that just go that it feels like they have a better shot at converting. And I've done stuff on – there's a, a high school coach in Little Rock, Arkansas, named Kevin Kelly. He's at Pulaski Academy in Little Rock. Yep. And like 60 Minutes has done a story on this guy. He, he does not punt, and he onside kicks every time. And I went and covered one of their games a few years ago, and they were playing Highland Park down in Dallas. And Highland Park at the time, I don't think had lost a home game since the 80s. And Pulaski just crushed them. And huh. it was amazing being on Pulaski's sideline and watching the other sideline during that game. It's the mentality. Think about the team that's down 14 
with four minutes to go that just does not, it's all gas, no brakes. They go for every fourth down. They onside kick if they score. Like that, you all, that team almost always does something positive offensively. They don't usually get shut down. And it's because they have nothing to lose. And so if you play the whole game like you've got nothing to lose, it really puts the other sideline in a, in a weird, weird spot. Like they really start to pucker up. I'm not necessarily trying to pitch a story idea, but I'm wondering if you've given any thought to the evolu- evolution of the onside kick. Because forever, right, oh, the onside I've, kick I, was you. Well, I, I want to get rid of it. I want to ban it. It's the, it's the least safe play in football. I, well, I, but I think it's, it but it's different than it used to be, though, right? Run a play. What's that? Well, I mean, it feels like it's different than it used to be because instead of trying to hit that low skitter that then gets a big hop and you have the collisions, everybody's just using their kicker to try and just like get it 10.01 yards and then him recovered himself. Yeah, you want the turtle shell. You want what the Cowboys did to the Falcons. But <laughs> the reason it's changed is because they don't let you overload one side anymore. So that's why you exactly. don't want the big hop and the collision. But I say get rid of that, and you figure out, use, use your analytics, and you figure out, okay, what is the percentage that the kicking team recovers? And then find out what is the success percentage on fourth and whatever match it up. Let's say if the kicking team recovers 33% of the time and offenses convert 33% of the time on 4th and 15, then you give them a 4th and 15 play from their own, from wherever they kick off, 30 to 35, and run a play. And if you convert it, if you gain 15 yards, you keep, you the, get ball. To keep the ball. If you don't, you don't. Hmm. The defense gets it right there, or the, the opponent gets it right there. I like that. I like it a lot. Uh, two, two more things I want to ask you about before we wrap up. You, you mentioned Matt Corral is the guy that makes this offense go. Who's the next most important player? Is it Elijah Moore? Is it Kenny Yaboa? Is it one of the running backs? It's the center. <laughs> it's, it's either Kenny Yaboa or the center. Uh, okay. and, and I'm blanking on his. Ben is his first Ben name. Brown. I know that. Ben Brown. Okay. So he was a, he was a guard last year, right? At, at a good right. One. But he moves to center, and, you know, that they – did an examination of the program, realized, okay, we're better off if he's at center. He has had some issues with high snaps. There's a couple in the Florida game, a couple in the Alabama game. But don't be too hard on him. He's going to get that part down because that's that's the part he's new at. What he's not new at is dealing with these these monsters that SEC defensive lines put in front of him. He's really good at handling those guys. And so if he gets the snap piece of it down, he's going to make himself a bunch of money. And I think I think that is is one of the things. If you watch Ole Miss, you know they're they're much stronger up the middle of their offensive line than they were this time last year. And I think that makes a big difference. I think Yoboa has been a huge addition. They do so much with him. The the sequence I was talking about, where they went from third and five to fourth and one. On third and five, he's lined up in the slot. He goes in motion and essentially acts as a lead blocker. And then the next play. He's, a, he's an attached tight end, which you hardly ever see anymore from spread teams, and it probably freaked Alabama out. You're like, what's he doing there? He was <laughs> he would line up in a three-point stance next to the left tackle. And then, you know, you go to the third quarter, and you've got him in the slot again, and he runs that beautiful route and, and catches the ball. Uh, right, right, Daniel Wright's diving, and Yaboa snatches it right before Wright can grab it, and then there's nobody behind him, and he scores for you know, a 68-yard touchdown. I think they can do a lot of things with him, and I think I think he's a good recruiting piece of recruiting tape for Ole Miss because 
you know, you look at NFL offenses, look at how they use the tight end. Look how important good tight ends are in the NFL and how valuable they are. Absolutely. Uh, I think I think you want a guy who, who wants to play in the NFL. The stuff they're asking their tight end to do is a good resume for the NFL. And so I think it should help them recruit those guys. Yeah, and feels like he may be playing himself into a, uh, a draft pick. Andy, really appreciate your oh, time. Yeah. Great stuff this afternoon. Fantastic article at The Athletic. Hope we can uh, visit with you again soon. All right, thanks, guys. Andy Staples from The Athletic on the Farm Bureau phone line. Ask him outside of Matt Corral, who he said makes the offense go for Ole Miss, who is the most important player, and he said it's either Kenny Yaboa or Ben Brown, the center. Now, I guess you have to know that in a previous life, Andy Staples was a walk-on offensive lineman at the University of Florida, and so there's probably a little love for the offensive line. But I thought that was a, an interesting direction to go. People look at Ben Brown this year and they're like, oh, he's got to get the snaps right. Because he's rolled some and he's airmailed a couple. But I think in doing that, Andy was on point about the fact that you kind of lose sight of just how good he has been as a lineman that happens to also snap the football. Yeah. And those snaps have been a killer. It's no surprise, though. Look where he went to high school. Where'd he go? St. Aloysius. Did he really? Yeah. I missed that. I'll ask him next time I see him if uh, he regularly pays homage to the Brian Haydad statue. <laughs> I can't even make a joke. That's so funny. <laughs> I just want to. I, we'll, we'll just just see what kind of a reaction I get when uh, when I ask him about that. Yeah. Um, and, and look, you got to remember, good, ch- good chance that St. Al could have back to back. Hall Trophy winners. You know, Drake Dorbeck won last year, and now Ben Brown, I think, has a, a great chance this year. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. Um, you you, you got to remember that this move to center for Ben Brown was necessitated by the opt-out the day before camp started of Eli Johnson, who was returning as the starting center. Now, this is to, to say nothing of the two. Ben Brown unquestionably is an upgrade in terms of blocking and kind kind of being in the middle of that offensive line over Eli Johnson, but it also forced you to kind of shuffle some things around, especially at the guard position. And so, you know, who knows how it would have ended up had Eli Johnson not chosen to opt out and, and move on. And certainly had his reasons for uh, for doing that, which are to be respected and with you know his prerogative. But uh, the offensive line has been they've been good, and you know what else they've done? They've all played every snap, almost every snap. There may there, there, there was some a shuffling bit, Saturday, a little bit of shuffling Saturday with uh, what was it Reese McIntyre and and Caleb Warren, who was uh, added into the mix, but. You've really only and, and and Ole Miss told you coming into the season they, I say Ole Miss told you maybe I should say the people who cover Ole Miss, kind of landed based on what Lane Kiffin and some others had said is that seven, is the number that they feel comfortable with, in terms of being pretty good on the offensive line, and so 
if that's the number, you got to stay healthy. They've played about six so far. I mean, they may have had seven that have gone out there, but the core group has been six through three games, and they've been fortunate to stay healthy so far. I still think it's remarkable how they. I mean, they just played four quarters with Alabama, right? The best defensive front they'll see all year. And we're still basically scoring at will through four quarters without doing much shuffling. And they go fast, too. So so that's big guys. Is that the best defensive front they'll face? Possibly. I, mean, I, I tend to I mean, agree with you just based on talent, but I mean, what, are, what would the other options be? The, just off the top of my head, defensive fronts that are, are at least good moving forward, I think would be Auburn, Texas A&M, and Mississippi State. So it's a LSU, choice between LSU them. LSU has talent. Yeah, they're just yeah. From Do a they talent though, are we sure that they have talent? No, I, I know. Point? I know they've got players. I just they're not playing well. But yeah, you know, from a talent standpoint, they won't face anybody better than Alabama in terms of potential LSU, NFL guys. LSU that, that has guys that were highly recruited and had big star rankings. Right yeah. now, that's about all we know about them. Yeah, they did get. Uh, is it Glenn Logan? Is that his name? Back today, uh, okay. so that maybe that's a little bit of a boost for him. I don't know what that does for them in the secondary, but it can't hurt to have another guy who can put pressure. They gave on the up four hundred yards. So, so in two, I, I don't have Vanderbilt's numbers in front of me. I'm assuming they weren't very big, but in just two games this year, don't worry, they've given up almost eleven hundred yards of offense through the air. Six twenty three against Mississippi State, and then over four hundred against Missouri. Hmm. Uh, they gave up. Oh, it was only one hundred thirteen yards. So yeah, not not bad. Yeah, I mean, against Vandy. whatever. But it's Vandy. Yeah. Right. Well, that, that And that's why I pointed to the two games. Yeah. So against two competent offenses, at least at the time in which they played, big, big numbers. Can I, I read mean, you a quote? And every coach says this, but can I read you a quote from Ed Orgeron that he said uh, in the – I think one week before the season started. Only if you read it in the Orgeron voice. Oh, I, well, then i got to send it to Richard because I can't do it. All right, go but, ahead. But he said, quote, We are so much Just better on defense right now than any part of the season last year. I feel with Bo Pelini has come in and brought a new energy, a new excitement. Dave Aranda did a tremendous job for us, but I'm glad we've moved to the 4-3. Okay. Oops. That was not me that said that. That was my alter ego. <laughs> Yeah, it looks like me, sounds like me. I didn't actually say that. Ted Borgeron who said that. <laughs> we're better on defense than we were at any point last season. Actually, I cannot tell a lie. Oops. I did say that. It might be the dumbest thing I've ever said in my life. Did you see what he said yesterday? No. we got to get more basic on defense. Oh, I don't yeah. care if we only run one defense, we've got to get to where we're good at that. Who does that remind you of? One Wesley McGriff. Yep. Got to limit the menu. I'll just tell Orgeron to try to cram into a schmedium shirt, and he'll just look like look like him the whole time. Well, it kind of does. Because if they do play the game this weekend, Dan Mullen is definitely going to have trouble with one or two defensive concepts only. Oh, yeah, well, that, you know. That'll be tough. We'll get out there and see what happens. And we'll then evaluate it. And then a few weeks later, Steve Sarkeesian's going to look at that uh, one set base defense and really scratch his head wondering how he's going to attack that. And then two weeks later, national championship winning Jimbo Fisher is going to think, you know, LSU with that really simple defense, how do, how do we attack that? I, I don't know. Adam in Baldwin says, so does Matt Luke get credit for the offensive line at Ole Miss? 
Well, he recruited those guys. I mean, some. Well, he and Jack McDonald Jr. I mean, they had good coaching on the offensive line the last two years. Say say what you want about the other. Look at the way they they ran, the way they've run the football, even you know this year and last year. I mean, you don't do that without good offensive line play. So yeah, Matt Luke, Matt Luke gets some credit. He he didn't leave the cupboard bare offensively at Ole Miss. Now defensively is another story. And on the defensive line in particular. It's rough, man. And that's why, you know, y'all were talking a few minutes ago about Ole Miss could win their next four, and they certainly could. But by the same token, you can't take anything for granted when you when you basically know going in you're giving up 35, and you just sort of yeah. have to take it from there. That's what gets lost on people. Is I've had so many people, especially on Sunday. For some reason, I haven't seen that question much here, but on Sunday it's, well, Mike McIntyre had a better defense last year, and they've gotten worse. Well, yes, because they lost – all of their defensive linemen, but Sam Williams, multiple starting defensive linemen, and two, including a former five-star in Benito Jones and a yeah. guy in Josiah yeah, Coatney. Benito that Jones and Josiah Coatney were good. Yes, and you, then in you the learned back that end, lesson. You all, yeah, you learned that. You know, and State learned it last year with Jeff Simmons gone. That big dude in the middle who's eating up blockers is is so important. You don't hear his name called a lot because that's just not his role. But yeah. when you have a guy who eats up blockers and, and maintains space. That opens everything else up. And Ole Miss lost him last year, and State lost him the year before. Yeah. Or this year, I guess I should say, for Ole Miss. And and, and I'll go back to what I said just a second ago. It wasn't just Benito Jones. It was the two of them. They lost a couple more. Beyond Jones and Coatney? Yeah. Um, Tariqis Tisdale? No, he's playing. Uh, not um, the. Oh, my gosh. What's his name, Richard? I'm sorry, I'm blanking. Also, I'm not any help to you. Right? He opted out right before the, the season. one time. I don't know. Hey, right before the, I, I will pull up a depth chart. Here we go. This is embarrassing. I should know this. Ceasefire text line. Will Kiffin go to Texas if they fire Tom Herman this season? Um, I yeah, offered that job. So, so, so the answer is, I don't really think that Texas is going to fire Tom Herman this season. But if they do, and they offer that job to Lane Kiffin, yes, he will go to Texas. Kadir Shepard and Chuck Wiley. Thank you. There you go. There you go. Lost those two guys as well on the defensive line. Those names were not right on the tip of my tongue. I'd love to take credit and say I almost had them. I did not. I didn't know them. so, So I'm not being dismissive when I say to your question, I don't think they're going to fire Tom Herman, but yeah. Other than Nick Saban, who wouldn't? It's Texas. Yes. That's not even thinking a shot at Ole Miss. That's everybody in the country. No, it's not. I mean, it's just honest. Yeah. I mean, to me, the fascinating question with that is, well, then do you give the head coaching job to a young Jeff Levy? But, I mean, we're... Just being hypothetical on top of hypothetical now. Sports Talk Mississippi. Sports Talk Mississippi with you streaming at supertalk.fm. We are glad to have you along this afternoon. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, and Brian Haydad. Tuesday night football in the National Football League. It's kind of weird, but we're here for it. Pretty 
good sports night tonight, if we're being perfectly honest. Buffalo and Tennessee in Nashville kick off at 6 p.m. on CBS. You get the Jim Nance, Tony Romo treatment. Both of those teams undefeated. Tennessee did not play last week. Buffalo's 4-0. Josh Allen has been fun. Tennessee is 3-0. A little bit different style than what Buffalo plays. If you are curious, Buffalo is given a 54% chance to win this game by the ESPN Football Power Index matchup predictor. Also, Buffalo is a three-point favorite with a total of 52. Buffalo will be without Zach Moss, without wide receiver John Brown. They are missing a guard in Quentin Spain, a corner in Tredavious White. You recognize that name. And tight end Lee Smith. That's not what I was laughing at, but yeah. The Titans, nobody specifically out. As of earlier today, A.J. Brown is questionable, as is Taylor Lewan. Looks like Brown is warming up, by the way. Okay. Well, A.J. Brown, yes? Yes. Okay. And then uh, John Brown, I thought, I was like, does he have a problem with his hind parts? Is that what that is? <laughs> I know what you were laughing at, by the way. As soon as he said it, I was like, sorry. Sorry, sorry. I know what uh, Adad's laughing at. Oh, oh, about the other thing? Uh, the uh, the Bunky? super spreader at the University of Florida happens to be, it's a joke, Megan Mullen. And it's a picture of her embracing one of Florida's players. It's a get off the bus. As soon as I, it was like right when we came back from the break and I saw it. And like I literally, I think I may have lurched forward trying not to laugh. <laughs> is, oh. is this on the Twitters? The Twitters yeah, yeah. Our man Bunky Perkins strikes again. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> there's people in the replies saying patient zero at Dan Mullen <laughs> <sighs> oh man uh, who tweeted I can't it? believe this app is free who, who did you say tweeted it Bunky Parkins uh, okay. the legend mm. oh man that's uh, that's good <laughs> Do you think does Mullen deserve to get ripped for his comments about yes. a full stadium? Yeah, especially when you can. I mean, they were not great comments at the beginning, but now this has happened. I mean, come on, buddy. So, <laughs> ah, well, I you just know, found it. Isn't that pretty good? <laughs> that's a great. That's it. great. So, a statement from Ross Bjork. I should not have scrolled away from that. Let's see here. One of the guys that um, one of the guys that covers te- uh, Scott Ravelli, who covers te- so this is originally from Chuck Carlton at the Dallas Morning News. Ross Bjork statement: We have been in touch with the officials at the University of Florida and have also reviewed the available data from the Connexon contact tracing system deployed by the SEC. At this point, there has been no impact within our football program, but we will continue our regularly uh, regular testing regiment this week and stay diligent with all of our safety protocols. As we stand right now, Texas A&M, Mississippi State, still on. And frankly, as we stand right now, Florida LSU is still on. Saw a tweet from my friend Ben Portnoy from the Commercial Dispatch. Both State and A&M are off next week, so 
if worse comes to worse, boom, you can just push it back uh, seven days and should be okay. Yes. That is true statement. And I think that's part of the wisdom in the way that the uh, the SEC schedule was put together. You had some yep. common dates, common open dates that were in there. Everybody's open dates fall in a three-week window. October 24th, next weekend is the first. Halloween weekend is the second. November 7th is the third. So you had everybody playing four straight weeks to start the season. You had, what, four teams each week with open dates over a three-week window, and then everybody is scheduled to play the final four weeks of the uh, of the season. Those crazy, dumb Southerners somehow lucked their way into doing something very smart. It's crazy. How does that happen? Yeah, and so the Missouri-Vanderbilt game that was supposed to happen this weekend, Missouri's open date is on November 7th. Vanderbilt's open date is October 24th. So because there was not a common open date there, they pushed the rescheduling for that game to December 12th. So, perfect. That's I mean, th- this was as we talked about all all summer long leading up to this, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when and what happens when. And now everything's in place to, to play a season and shuffle things around to make it work because this was going to come eventually and here we are. Yeah. It's not surprising. It's not terribly alarming. I think you're fortunate that in three weeks with 21 games scheduled, you were able to play 21 games. Because that has not been the experience for the uh, the other conferences that have launched into their season. They've had early issues. There is an issue right now. So going back to what you said a second ago, so you're mad at Dan Mullen for saying they want 90000 in the stadium? Not mad, but I'm you know what I mean. Not mad. I just thought it was... I mean, it's, it's, it's a comment that you know is going to draw a lot of controversy, and you know it's not going to happen. Scott Strickland's not going to do that. Would you bump the capacity up if you were Scott Strickland? Not now. Not now? <laughs> yeah, what are you doing? No. I would have, though, yes. I mean, it's bad timing to talk about this right now, all things considered, but Texas A&M did have a no, home on field. PPR, on NPR. Um environment they did they did not they announced 25,000 there were 50,000 people in that 40 50,000 there yeah easily I, I don't know that there were 50 there and the reason I say that is the upper decks they are big. in college station are yeah. massive yeah my my this is a guess here I'm going to guess that between the two end zone upper decks in college station, you probably put twenty five thousand in those two, yeah. maybe thirty. They're massive, though. And even when they have ninety five thousand people at the game, which is what nine four three four five thousand short of a sellout, those upper corners of those upper decks stay empty. Anyway, but yeah, there were a bunch of people in there. And they played a role. And Texas A&M has actually had a little bit different rules for the Corps of Cadets because that part of the student body there is constantly interacting. I bet they are. (laughs) Or he. (laughs) (sighs) 
Saw Varsity's horns off as we hug in a football stadium. Weirdos. You see, I'm not sure if it won the uh, the caption contest, but the uh, the best one I saw on the message board this week for the possible reader board at Strange Brew Coffee House was uh, "You bring the milk, we'll bring the turnovers." (laughs) Thought that was fantastic. I still think they're for real. Sends us hashtag milkman. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I go back to what I said yesterday, though. I think I mean this is a. I don't know if you call it an important game in a COVID year and whatnot, but. For Mississippi State to have A&M on the schedule after back-to-back letdowns, I think that's a tough spot because they, and maybe I get proved wrong this weekend, Lord knows it's happened before and it will happen again, but they might just be actually for real. And so this is, I mean, of all the teams in the SEC that you could have played a week after a letdown, I don't know if this is the one you want to see. But by that same token, maybe you get a letdown from them coming off of a huge top-five win. They lost their leading receiver. It's possible they come in with a big head, and if you can play turnover-free football, maybe you can stay in the game. Of course, that's like saying if you know if it's some butts or candy and nuts, but sort of the, the the that's the underlying story of Mississippi State this year. If my aunt were anatomically different, she would be my uncle. That's a longer way of putting it. Yes, but yep, sure. Yep. Yep. More, more politically correct than family yeah, friendly. Yeah, I, I, I have I have edited that for radio use. Story at USA Today: Old Miss coach Lane Kiffin didn't steal Alabama's defensive signals on Saturday, and he would have had no use for them even if he got them. Some interesting quotes that make a whole lot of sense from Lane Kiffin in the story. We'll give you those when we come back. College football fix is just around the corner. Cole Kubelik will join us to begin the five o'clock hour. This is Sports Talk Mississippi. Today about Lane Kiffin in Alabama, the kerfuffle is probably not the way to describe it, but the post-game comments from Nick Saban that he has since backed off of, the post-game comments from Dylan Moses that I don't know he's been asked about again. Uh, here's what it was. The lead in the story, Ole Miss Lane, uh, Coach Lane Kiffin didn't steal Alabama's defensive signals on Saturday, and he would have had, and he would have had no use for them even if he got them. This was the original quote post game from Nick Saban. It seemed like everything we did, they had an answer for. I'm not sure if they had our signals or what, but that's not anything unusual. It seemed like any time we called something, they had the best thing they could call against it. They had a really good plan. I don't know if that's a backhanded compliment. Nick Saban just kind of throwing something at the wall to see what sticks. What? Here's how Lane Kiffin responded. If you understand tempo, signals wouldn't help us. We call a play basically before the last play is even over. Before they mark the ball, we call our play. Then they scramble to get their play called. They're just trying to get their guys lined up. 
it wouldn't do us any good. By the time someone would relay, <clears throat> excuse me, relay that to us, we're already snapping the ball. Kiffin also said he's never known Saban's defensive signals, even when he was his offensive coordinator. And the article points out that the defensive coordinators at Alabama in the time that Lane Kiffin was there were Kirby Smart and Jeremy Pruitt, who are head coaches elsewhere now. Dylan Moses, when asked about whether or not he thought Ole Miss had stolen the Crimson Tide signals, he said, I definitely do. Lane Kiffin went on to say this with regard to stealing signals. People do it. It's not illegal. People do it all the time. It's usually people that play slower. People steal our signals all the time. But it's hard to translate to the players that to the players because we're going so fast. We didn't do that. It is what it is. It doesn't make any sense if you understand how we play. Is this story now over? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's over. I mean... Uh, first of all, they're obviously not going to play each other again this year, um, right? And I, I just, I just feel like yeah, it, it's just, it's just going to get left behind by news stories, which are going to cry. I mean, we're already moving into Florida, Kevin maybe canceling a game, Missouri and Vanderbilt canceling a game, but nobody will be talking about this on Saturday. It does feel like there's faulty log- logic there on the behalf of Nick Saban and Dylan Moses, though. If you watch the game, I don't see there's any possible way you could be stealing signs and relaying them in with the tempo at which Ole Miss was playing. Which makes it so bizarre that that was even a thing that they said. Because that, if anything, that would reflect incompetence, and everybody and their brother knows that Alabama football under Nick Saban is anything but that. So it was weird. I would never thought I would hear something like that come from Nick Saban's Alabama. Although Nick Saban has said things in the past that were beneficial to him. Yeah, but this just made them look like idiots. And they're they're not. Complete jump cut here. Interesting headline on ESPN.com. You could potentially have the Van Gundy brothers back coaching in the NBA. Stan Van Gundy, who's been a media guy for the last couple of years, is meeting with the New Orleans Pelicans today, emerging as one of four expected finalists for the franchise's coaching job. The others are Ty Lue, an assistant with the Clippers, and, oh, I don't know who the other two are. Uh, We don't know yet. Okay. But Jeff Van Gundy reportedly is meeting with the Houston Rockets. And he's been a TV analyst for a number of years. Does Stan Van Gundy do anything for you as coach of the Pelicans? Yeah, it does, actually. I mean, he it was constantly dealt bad rosters, and part of that was his doing in Detroit, but made the playoffs during a rebuild, and his work in Orlando is excellent. And yeah. his pedigree is teaching. Took the Magic to the finals in 2009. Yeah. And this is a team that is really young and filled with talent, but needs a more a teacher of the game. And their yeah. their previous coach was very loose, let the guys play, not much structure in the system. And when you've got a bunch of twenty two year olds, it didn't really work. He's a teacher of the game. He's far more structured, which is what a roster that's this young but talented really needs. Maybe he never takes them to a final, especially in the West. But as far as building this young core into something that is a playoff 
contender annually, it's a great start. I'd prefer him over Lou, and I don't know who the other two are. Ty Lou, Jeff Van Gundy, also in the mix for the Rockets and the Clippers jobs. Niles sends us a message on Twitter. He says, Saban was totally dissing his defensive coaches, telling them that Kiffin had out-schemed them. That's it. Maybe so. Maybe that's the message he was sending. Maybe it had nothing to do with actually believing that Ole Miss had its defensive signals. I don't know. Cole Kubelik will join us to start the 5 o'clock hour on the Farm Bureau phone line. That's coming up in six minutes. This is Sports Talk Mississippi. Back with you on Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming at supertalk.fm on this Tuesday afternoon. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad. Seaspire text line is open to you, 601-879-4395. Don't forget, 100 bucks off an iPhone if you're looking to upgrade or add a new line. Go to cspire.com. If you're a current customer, just log into your account and see what upgrade options are available to you. Or you can um, stop by your local Seaspire store, and you can uh, talk to them about what's available. That's exactly what I did yesterday. Told you about that yesterday. Jay needed a new phone, ran by, talked to them. They had one in stock. Got the uh, iPhone 11, the, uh, what, the 128-gig one, and uh, had me out the door in, oh, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. And it was uh, it was good stuff. Great service. Always, uh, you're dealing with local people at C Spire, and it's uh, worth it. And you can save 100 Dollars on an iPhone right now at Ceasefire. We are scheduled to visit with Cole Kublik, having a little trouble connecting with him. We will continue to uh, try to get connected with Cole as we uh, want to talk some college football with him. Let's talk about the games that are coming up this weekend. And we uh, we did a little bit with this yesterday. We'll take a little deeper dive into what's coming up this weekend. That will be our college football fix. College football fix is driven by Ford and your local Mississippi Ford dealers. Log on to buyfordnow.com and find out why the best-selling trucks are built for tough. But don't just take their word for it. Get behind the wheel of an F-150. Got a few 19s that are left. Going to have those 2020s rolling. I'm sorry. Got a few 2020s left, and we'll have those 2021 F-150s rolling in before too terribly long. You can test drive one at your local Mississippi Ford dealer. So Monday night football and two NFL, or I'm sorry, two Major League Baseball playoff games tonight, NLCS, ALCS. Some middle-of-the-week football, Coastal Carolina and Louisiana are scheduled to play on Wednesday night. Louisiana still sitting there at number 21 in the rankings. Two games on Friday night involving top 25 teams. Undefeated SMU, led by quarterback Shane Buchel, who through four games has thrown for 1,326 yards and 10 touchdowns. They are playing Tulane, who is sitting at 2-2. Two and two. And then one of the most impressive teams in the country so far this season. BYU at Houston on Friday night. That game's on ESPN at 8.30. Quarterback for BYU has been outstanding. Zach Wilson, 
is completing over 82% of his passes. 1,241 yards, eight touchdowns on the season. And Houston just played their first game of the year. If you watched that last, uh, I guess it was last Thursday night. I think it was Thursday. Yeah. Took a little while for Tulane to get going. But once they got it rolling, man, they got it rolling in the second half of that ballgame in a big way. So those are a couple of semi-entertaining games middle of the week. You mean Houston, right? Yes, it was Houston's first game. Yeah, but they, they were the ones who they won. Did I not say they won? Well, you said that it, Tulane got it rolling in the second half. It, it was Houston that got I'm it. I'm sorry, I didn't mean Tulane. Yeah. It was, it was Houston against Tulane. Yeah, yeah. And Houston kind of sputtered out of the gate. Right. But in the second half, they got it rolling big time. So that could be a fun game. That could be a light-up-the-scoreboard game. The SEC games this weekend. We know you got Mississippi State and Texas A&M. We know you got Ole Miss and Arkansas. Let's talk about the others for a second. Auburn and South Carolina. Auburn only a three-point favorite in this game for an 11 a.m. kickoff. Borky, I think it was you earlier that said Auburn could find themselves in a little bit of trouble in Columbia, South Carolina. I mean, I really think they could. What about anything you've seen from Auburn makes you think that they're just going to walk into Columbia and beat South Carolina? I know it's Vanderbilt, and everybody's going to do this to Vanderbilt, but at least it's a South Carolina team coming off of a pretty decent offensive performance a week after they had another pretty decent offensive performance in Gainesville. So, look, Florida's defense isn't great. Vanderbilt is Vanderbilt, but I think South Carolina currently is playing better than Auburn. I just I just look at that. I I'm I, you know me, Muschamp is not my favorite, but you know, well, Auburn's not your favorite not either. That's true. Yeah, this is this is a great test for me. But I, I just feel like South Carolina, I mean, they they beat up on Vanderbilt. They moved the ball in Florida, who we've seen is not very good defensively. I, I think Auburn will win this game pretty easily. Tennessee's a six point favorite at home against Kentucky. Vols were very competitive against Georgia in the first half. Kentucky got their first win, as you know, against Mississippi State. They did very little offensively. Terry Wilson is the leading rusher on that team at 221 yards on the season. Can Kentucky give Tennessee problems on Saturday? Without a doubt. I think they can because they can certainly run the football. They'll be playing with some confidence. I think Tennessee's better, though. I think I think I think it'll be a close game, but right now my, my my thoughts are that Tennessee would win. You know the interesting thing about LSU sitting at one and two. We had so many questions after the opener about Miles Brennan, and now you look up and through three games, he's thrown for over eleven hundred yards. He's got eleven touchdown passes. He's completing what about sixty percent of his passes. Miles Brennan has not been the issue. I heard somebody talking about this the other day. You go, LSU 1-2. and two. Man, do they sure miss Joe Burrow and Joe Brady. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess maybe they do. But Joe Burrow and Joe Brady being gone is not the reason that LSU is no. sitting at 1-2. and two. Offensively, LSU has been pretty darn good. It's They haven't been able to run the ball. The guy they've missed offensively is Edward Solaire. 
They haven't been able to run the ball very effectively. Yeah, but but so, yeah, isn't Brennan it the combination of Edwards Hilaire and offensive so, yeah. line? Yeah, no, there's no doubt. But that but yeah, Brennan has been better than I thought he was going to be. He's he's played pretty well. You can't put I mean when you lose games where you score thirty four points and uh and forty one or whatever it was they scored uh Saturday, yeah. you can't put any of that on him for sure. Th- think about the sequence at the end of that game against Missouri. LSU had it first and goal at the one. Mm-hmm. needing a touchdown to win the football game. Ran the ball on first down, nothing. Ran the ball on second down, nothing. Abandoned the run, partly because they were out of timeouts. And on third down, threw a pass to the left where a Missouri defender jumped the route made a great defensive play. And then on fourth down, maybe an even better defensive play because it wasn't a jump the route situation it was just great defending miles brennan rolled to his right everything was kind of flooding to the right he tried to throw a bullet kind of to the front part of the end zone just across the goal line and missouri's corner that was in coverage there did a great job not bumping the receiver came across batted it away it was an incredible defensive stand at the end but but you go hold on a second lsu the lsu of Les miles even the lsu under ed ogeron First and goal at the one with a chance to win the football game, and they cannot get a yard on the ground. And this was after Ed Ogeron talked all week about, we've got to run the football. It's not about the offense, though. I mean, I know that's different, but... I understand. It It shouldn't have come to that. It it shouldn't have come to that, but something that... uh, They had given up 45 at that point for the record. And it's baffling, really, in hindsight, that this wasn't talked about as much as it should have been. But they did lose Dave Aranda. And yeah. it was Joe Brady, Joe Burrow, and rightfully so, because Joe Burrow broke yeah. every record in the book. And that was maybe the greatest offensive performance in totality in college football history for a season. So, of course, it got overlooked. But Dave Aranda's a head coach at Baylor now. I mean, he was highly sought after like that for a reason, and you replaced it with Bo Pelini. Clearly a downgrade and slightly less sought after. Slightly less sought after, uh, even though I guess he had some pretty good teams uh, as the head coach of the Youngstown State Fighting Penguins, but that's uh, not Dave Aranda. And think it's about funny. it. All we talked about was Joe Brady all offseason. Maybe I wish they were going to miss him. And I still think they do. Their offense isn't as good. I know they're putting up numbers, but it, it doesn't look as, as crisp some of as it did a season ago. Though. Oh, yeah, obviously. But Aranda's the guy they're missing the most right now, for sure. Yeah. And Derek Stanley can't do it all. I mean, he may be the best cornerback in the country, but he can only cover one guy at a time. Corey Vincent out. They kind of were looking for him to do the exact same thing on the opposite side of the field that Stanley Jr. is doing. Yeah. Alabama's a six-point favorite at home against Georgia. Total in that game is only 57. 63-48 was the final in Oxford on this past Saturday night. I think we're squared away. Cole Kublik going to join us next. Missing the line in that game between Alabama and Georgia. 
Alabama's a six-point favorite. There are a lot of people that decided that the pecking order in the SEC changed over the weekend after Georgia beat Tennessee and Alabama won but gave up a bunch of points to Ole Miss. Right team favored? Wrong team favored? Number just about right? The number's about right. Alabama should be favored. Okay. The question is, will Georgia be able to score with them? Yeah, and that's it, yeah. And the if I mean, Georgia's a different style offensively. A much different style offensively than what we saw with Ole Miss this past weekend. So let's ask Cole Kubelik that question. He joins us right now on the Farm Bureau phone line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team. Cole, just talking about the line on the Alabama-George game. Bama, six-point favorite at home. I think the total in the game is 57. Can Georgia keep up offensively with Alabama? Obviously, that defense is really, really good at Georgia. So I don't think Alabama is going to score 63. But they're still explosive. Absolutely. And, and no, they can't keep up. That's why I think you, you try to make it a different style game. Um, I think Georgia can manufacture points. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in the Atlanta airport Saturday morning and I've got the Alabama Ole Miss film on. And, you know, I'm, I'm literally having to go back and watch every play six, seven, eight times because I, I don't believe what I'm seeing. And the, the fact that legitimately 60, 70% of the run plays that Lane Kiffin called the Ole Miss offensive line is getting an actual push at the point of attack. And, I mean, I, I couldn't believe my eyes. Because not five years ago, ten years ago, 20 years from now, did I think we'd be saying that the Ole Miss offensive line, for the majority of the game, I'm not saying it was pure domination or a complete mauling, it wasn't 95 Nebraska, but they got a legitimate push the majority of the snaps in the run game against Alabama. And is that because the Ole Miss offensive line is good? If they, can find a way to, if they can find a way to do that, then I would think that other teams can find a way to do that. So we were talking with Andy Staples earlier, and, and he had kind of an interesting story in The Athletic about the Ole Miss offense and the way they're going about things. And I said, after Matt Corral, who's the most important player? And his response might surprise you. He said Ben Brown at the center spot. You buy into that? Uh, no, but Ben's playing good football. Uh, you know, He was a guy that I think the last few years Ole Miss fans kind of tried to force-feed you as you know, being one of the best offensive linemen in the SEC, and it, it, it kind of wasn't there. Um, he's looked good this year. He's, he's done a really good job. Um, I, I feel like center left has been really good. I've been, I've been impressed with the left guard. Um, Broker, obviously, we, we knew about him last year and still yeah. doing some good things. And, and again, it's not, it's not like Christian Barmore didn't make some plays. He did. Will Anderson made some plays. Uh, DJ Dale had a series where I think he made three in a row or, you know, three out of four or five plays. He, he makes a play. So, you got guys making plays, but I think where Lane stresses you is, all right, what if every player on your defense makes two good plays? Is that enough against 80 plays, 85 plays? Probably not. So, I mean, it's you don't have time for a bust in the secondary. You don't have time for a linebacker's eyes to get lost, which was maybe the second most incredible thing that I saw in that game was the amount of times that the Alabama linebackers literally did not know which way to run. And that's where he stresses you. I mean, he gives you multiple things to read and key on every play. And, you know, whether it's, whether it's a, a jet, bubble, orbit motion, some sort of a reverse action, 
you know, the quarterback obviously has the ability to keep the ball and run, an RPO where you hit the tight end. It's just it's one after another after another. And he does an excellent job of taking what he knows are normally your keys and, and abusing those. So he'll, he'll force you to key on what you would in every other game, and it's going to work against you where he's going with the football. It's magnificent stuff. It really is. So he's got to find a way to get some stops, man. You're giving up 650 yards a game. Like, it's embarrassing. But so it's the worst defense in the country by, I think, 70 or 80 yards a game. So mm. you got you got to give yourself some opportunities on that side of the ball. I know it's going to take a little time, but – what they're doing on offense is, is super impressive. And you knew this. I knew this. The people who follow it knew this. They had skill on that side of the ball. They had, they had legit weaponry on that side of the ball. And he's, he's doing a great job using it. And it's almost like he's not even emptied his clip. I mean, you still got Plumlee there that could find some sort of a role and, and make them even more dangerous or more of a role. So this is, you know, now you introduce a tight end that not a lot of people knew about. He looks like a playmaker. So... I mean, I think the dynamic has changed around Ole Miss for the rest of the season. And that if you're a team like, if you're a team, say, like an Auburn, if you're a team like an Arkansas, that you might be able to move the ball a little bit, but if you were to get into a track meet, that's just not for you. Mm. That's going to be a very, very troubling game. Well, and, and that's what I wanted to ask you about. And I know Haydad wants to jump in in just a second, but when you look at the seven games remaining on the schedule, Ole Miss, I think, has its two most difficult challenges behind it in Florida and Alabama. They lost both of them, but they were competitive in both of them. You look at the seven games they've got left, and I'm not by any stretch saying that they win all seven, but there's nobody left on that schedule that, that scares you, and you're like, I don't think we can play with them. Is there? No, but I think I, I, think, I, I kind of talked about this with Auburn today. So, you know, so, um, you know, my co-host, Landon Roberts, on Jocks, you know, he's like, what's your biggest concern with Auburn moving forward? I said, well, obviously injuries. They're pretty beat up right now, so I don't think you could get around that. I said, but after that, it would be the offenses remaining on the schedule. Not even the teams, just the offenses. Because when you okay. think about what Mississippi State's always capable of, I mean, it hadn't gone well the last two weeks, but it, it can any week. We know what LSU can do offensively. I mean, yes, they lost, but they still threw for 400-plus. We'd see what Ole Miss has been doing to uh, what we thought were going to be some pretty good defenses. Um, I mean, obviously, we know what Alabama's offense can do. Now it looks like A&M's getting their act together offensively, even though they just lost what looked like the number one receiver that had sort of reemerged for the rest of the season. But still, uh, those, those are not games that Auburn can just trade points with. They can't. So the only thing that I would say about that in the Ole Miss schedule is you do have a couple of teams left that I think could trade points with you and have – some legit talent on defense that might be able to come up with a stop or two or make a big play, and then ultimately that's the difference in the game. But you're right. I, I don't think you look down that schedule and say, oh, there's three more that they just absolutely cannot win. I, I, I don't think anybody would say that. Well, Cole, it's Brian. Let's, let's flip the script a little bit and talk about bad offense and pretty good defense. And you saw Mississippi State firsthand uh, Saturday night. I had you on the podcast last week. I asked, you know, do you think State is more of what they showed against LSU or more of what they showed against Arkansas? You said more of what they showed against LSU. Having seen them live and having seen what LSU did on Saturday, do you still hold to that? Uh, you know, that, that first game is just such an anomaly right now, Brian, because yeah. I look at the way that Polini handled that game and managed that game, and it was, I mean, it, it, was, it was egregious. It was almost irresponsible now when you think about it from the standpoint of you have better personnel, yet you chose to be aggressive to the point of failure. And the amount of pressures, the amount of blitzes, games, stunts that you ran in that game was completely uncalled for. And you look back now and you say, how would that game have gone if they just 
you know, played base, played nickel, and just stayed off the entire game. We don't really know. But what, what I do know is that there are, there are some distinct issues with what Mississippi State's trying to do that are going to be very difficult to correct. Um, the offensive line's having trouble with three, and yeah. that is completely unacceptable. Pressure with three against five should literally never happen. I mean, it, you can put, you know, Quinn and Williams, uh, Indomitian Sue, and, you know, Jonathan Allen. Those three should not be able to get pressure against five of us. It should never happen. I, I, don't, I just, I don't care what the circumstances are because you're, you're, you've got at least two double teams, bare minimum. So it's just, it, it, there, there's, and you can have a double team where one guy leaves to help the other so you can effectively double everybody at some point in that process, and it's just not happening. So um, I think you've got an issue with timing. I think you've got an issue with rhythm. And most importantly, there might be an issue with patience right now. And, and I don't, it doesn't really matter how much patience you have if you don't have you know, a pocket to be able to step up and deliver the football in or have the patience to be able to stay in and throw the ball. But, like, I talked to Chris Hatcher a lot, Stanford head coach, about going into that game. I'm like, teach me the air raid. Just talk to me about it. You know, he, he, he won you know, his player of the year playing at Valdosta State for Hal Mummy. Coach Leach was on that staff. Holgerson was on that staff. Um, I, I, I talked to, to his quarterback, Dusty Bonnet, who won the award twice and playing for Coach Hatcher. And then, you know, Hatch coach is now at Stanford. He's still running air raid. And it was funny that the, the, the consistent theme of those two guys were both patience. And it's, just, it's all patience. And Dusty Bonner said it really, really cool where he said, listen, man, it's a, it's a, when you're getting what they're getting last week and probably going to get again this week, it's just a chess match of patience. Like, are you going to be okay dinking and dunking for 65 plays a game, 60, 55 plays a game? If not, then you're going to try to press and you're going to make a mistake. And on the flip side of that, is your defense that you're facing, are they cool with you throwing four-yard, three-yard, six-yard behind the line of scrimmage throws and then trying to make tackles 55, 60 times a game? Uh, if they are, then it just comes down to who has the best players. And if you're not, then that defense is going to come up. Somebody's going to get overly aggressive, try to make a play, and that's where you attack. Well, it doesn't feel like the last two defenses have gotten overly aggressive. And maybe they haven't had to because they've been able to pressure with three. But I would probably lean towards the other side right now. And unfortunately, a lot of people probably categorize the system that way. And I agree with what Mike said last week. Listen, man, if, if dropping, dropping eight and rushing three worked, I'd been out of business 25 years ago. I, I agree with that. However, I do think there's a small caveat to that. And it is and, – and I don't know the answer to this because this would take probably some more research than I ever had the time to do. But I think the three of us can probably assume one side of this. Has that ever happened to him with the kind of athletes that he's now going to be facing? As in, the three who are attempting to rush against five can actually make that happen on a regular basis. Or the amount of grass that can be covered by the eight that drops is very different than what it has been previously. And if that's what I think it is, this might be a little more difficult than we thought it was going to be. But... I think now you're going to begin to deal with some attitude issues. You're going to be, you're going to be, you're going to deal with, you know, people kind of soul searching, leadership, looking over both shoulders in the locker room, wondering what's going to happen. Uh, we've already seen some comments in the media that don't necessarily feel too friendly. So those are, would be bigger concerns of mine right now than is the air raid ever going to work in the SEC. Interesting stuff as always, Cole. The time is always too short. Look forward to uh, visiting with you again soon. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Cole Kublik on the Farm Bureau phone line. This is Sports Talk Mississippi. And I don't know the answer to this because this would take probably some more research than I ever had the time to do. But I think the three of us can probably assume one side of this. 
Has that ever happened to him with the kind of athletes that he's now going to be facing? As in, the three who are attempting to rush against five can actually make that happen on a regular basis. Or the amount of grass that can be covered by the eight that drops is very different than what it has been previously. And if that's what I think it is, this might be a little more difficult than we thought it was going to be. But I think now you're going to begin to deal with some attitude issues. You're going to be, you're going to be, you're going to deal with, you know, people kind of soul searching leadership, looking over both shoulders in the locker room, wondering what's going to happen. Uh, We've already seen some comments in the media that don't necessarily feel too friendly. So those are, would be bigger concerns of mine right now than is the air raid ever going to work in the SEC. So that was how Cole finished up uh, when we went to a break just a second ago. And some interesting stuff there. Let, let's rewind just a little bit and think about what he said. He, he talked about patience, and he talked about patience for Mississippi State offensively versus patient uh, patience for opposing defenses. And it was almost like that was kind of a battle of wills. If the defense gets frustrated, well, let's start on the offense first. Mississippi State ran 70. 87 plays, and 70 of them were passes. And he was talking about some of the folks that were, you know, had played in that air raid and said, you got to be patient and willing to, for 55 or 60 of the pass plays in the game, just take what's there underneath, kind of dink and dunk. And in that test of wills, it's if the defense at some point loses patience in covering that and they jump something, then you have the opportunity for a big play on offense. And then the flip side is if the defense just continues to stay patient, and those big plays never present themselves, then the offense has got an issue. That's a really fascinating way to look at what Mississippi State is now doing offensively, especially, hey, Dad, when you marry what he said about Mike Leach, if rush three, drop eight was the solution to stopping this, I would have been out of coaching a really long time ago. It's like a game of chicken. Who's going to flinch first? And the thing is, you would think it's the defense, right? Because... If you're dinking and dunking and getting four or five or six yards of pass, well, you're moving the chains. And it becomes a question of, all right, at some point we have to take a chance here to, to break this up, and that's when the, the deep ball should be available to you or a, a guy like Kylan Hill runs out into space and nobody's within five, six yards of him. That's when those opportunities are going to come. So he's right. You know, If you look at what K.J. Costello is doing, A, there's he's, he's having some problems with protection, and, and those were very uh, pointed but fair comments uh, from Cole about Mississippi State's offensive line. They are not playing well enough for, for them to win. But then on top of that, there are just some op- there's just some 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 plays where KJ Costello is impatient with the ball and he's putting it in, into dangerous areas and it's getting away from him and it's going back the other way more often than not. Uh so yeah, this is this is it's, it's just like a, a running game. It's just it's just through the air. State has to be, if state was just running the ball 40 50 times a game and getting five or six yards nobody says anything because that's what they're used to people are, are so impatient that, oh they think the passing game has to be all this stuff over the top if it's not there it's not there you just take what the defense gives you as long as you're moving the chains you're you're in good shape state he's right state just needs to be more patient that will cut out the turnovers that will lead to more more points and that should lead to some wins for Mississippi State 
Cody and Tupelo says it's turnovers. 13 to 14 turnovers in three games. You're not supposed to ever win an FBS game, much less an SEC game. If you cut the turnovers in half, you're two and one. It's a, I, I, if you cut them in half, well, he you might said be at three least and two and one. Yeah, yeah. Especially when there's the, you're talking about there's a pick six in every game. The pick six is the difference in the Arkansas game. And it's 14 14. And uh, yeah, if you go out those those two trips into the red zone. Where you're, you're, you know, you're down 21-14, and they decide to go for it. Well, you're not, go, you're not doing that. You're just kicking the field goals and taking a 17-14, and then a 20-14 lead, and you win the ball game. Kentucky, I mean, you gave up really 10 points defensively, or I'm sorry, uh, 14 points uh, defensively. I mean, it's just the, the turnovers are killing them, and that, that that's the only, that's the reason states lose. And it's it, it's not a Mississippi State thing. Anybody who turns the ball over like that is going to lose. It doesn't matter how good you are anywhere else. So if you got, they got to find a way to fix that. That's that to me. If I'm Mike Leach, that is the number one thing on my my clipboard of things I've got to fix before we hit the field Saturday. Quinn sends us a message, Borky, on the ceasefire text line. He says, "Yeah, based on what he described, LSU did everything wrong." Yeah, and it, right. what was baffling is that they just never got out of it. I mean, they didn't even try anything else. Maybe they just assume that our athletes are better than theirs, but just still, I mean, completely mind blowing. Is there? I mean, Leach was asked about it this week, right? About is KJ going to be the starter? And he basically uh, bunted on it. And that's what he did all summer, too. And he ended up being the starter. But. Well, and I really wanted to ask Cole that. And we just ran out of time. Obviously, we ran out of time with Cole. But I wanted to ask him. I was like, you know, is is a change in quarterback the solution? I mean, you, you saw both guys on Saturday night, but. The other one turned it over, too, though. Yeah. And he's, I mean. Twice. It's it's tough for Rodgers in that you know if you, you say you pull Costello this week right, and so you go with Rodgers. Well, you're going up against a pretty confident team. Uh, you know Texas A&M they're pretty good defensively, but at the same time if you you, so you give Costello one more chance and he doesn't do a great job, you're like all right well we'll start Will Rogers the next game. Well that's on the road at Alabama. So that's going to be Will Rogers' first start ever. Is that game? That seems like a bad idea. So we saw that last year. Yeah, so so, so Ole Miss do it last year, and yeah, while John Rice Plumley did some good things, the result was kind of what you expected it would be. So for State, and we said this on the podcast, and I'll say it here: the the best the best way for State to get right and get winning again is for KJ Costello to stop turning the ball over. If he would do that and start you know turning those those interceptions into completions, they can start winning football games. But if he doesn't do that, then yeah, he he's going to go from the 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 darling of college football to on the bench. In four weeks. Derek and Greenwood, so is it better to lose after scoring 50 or lose by not scoring at all? Uh, we talked about this on yesterday's show. It's better to lose after scoring 50. At least you feel like you're in the game. You feel like if the other team makes a mistake, you can take advantage of it. When you can't score, it's the most frustrating thing in the world. And you're just like, it doesn't matter. You you, you go into games, as soon as it's 7 to nothing, uh, you're down 7 nothing. you think, okay, it's over, we can't win. Whereas Ole Miss, you know, it was 42-42 in the fourth quarter. In the fourth they're in quarter. the game. Yeah, you're in the game. You got a chance. It was Even 49-45 with, with six minutes to play. Yeah, you're in the game the whole time. So yeah, I would much rather. Never mind from an entertainment factor, but you'd much rather you know be bad. I don't want to be as bad as Ole Miss is defensively, but you'd rather be able to <laughs> score and, and lose some high scoring. Nobody games does. That, yeah, you don't want to lose games. You know, ten to three. You don't. You don't. You don't want to do that. Not in today's college football, and, not, and you, just, you just can't do it. Cole talked about Ole Miss's opponents the rest of the way. 
in terms of the track meet. And hey, Dad, you pointed out earlier, and and, and I think it's I think it's reasonable that if Ole Miss has a game where things don't click offensively and they don't score forty, then it may be a tough day. If if they turn it over a couple of times, if they, you know. Whoever the opponent is, break serve, to use your, your analogy from yesterday. That, that's what I was going to say. And it's not even not, don't click. It's a pass gets deflected up in the air and gets picked off and it goes for six. That That's yeah. like a 14-point swing for Ole Miss. A pick six, that's a, that, that is a drive they were probably going to score on and now the other team has scored. That's that's a huge swing for them. Happened in and Lexington it, Saturday night, 14-point swings. On the way in to score multiple yeah. times and led to touchdowns for Kentucky. But, but the other piece of this is Ole Miss doesn't really have opponents left, and I think this is the point that Cole was making, that are necessarily equipped to be in a track meet. And so... I agree with that. You know, I mean, offensively, you don't face anybody that is explosive this year as Alabama is. You don't face another tight end as good as Kyle Pitts was. Right. Although there is a Henry on the roster at Arkansas, so who knows? (laughs) He caught a touchdown last night for the Saints, and I was like, I thought of you. I was like, now I hate him too. But, uh, I mean, Ole Miss's last three opponents are teams that will be able to score with them, that are equipped offensively to score That's with right. them, considering how poor they are defensively. And just take Arkansas else. real quick. They had 400-plus yards of offense and 28 points on Auburn, who's not bad defensively. I mean, is it out of the realm of possibility to say they get 550 and 42 points on Ole Miss? Can Ole Miss match 42 points? That's what they're going to have to do. Against Arkansas? Yeah. Yeah. I think I mean, so. I think they can, but they're going to have I, I to do, is the problem. I, yeah, I think they can. They just scored 48 on Alabama. Arkansas is not as ta- talented as Alabama. No. I don't think Arkansas is as talented as Florida is. But you played almost a perfect game offensively against Alabama. Can you do it again? We'll see. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.